Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Alex Youngblood and Joe McCall here coming at you with another Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast, the podcast where we show you how you can use real estate investing to basically change your life. Uh, this is all about uh, lifestyle design and, and making life work for you rather than uh, you working for life. So we bring on the best people we possibly can to talk about what's going on in their business, how you can take it and implement it in your business and take your business to the next level. If you haven't uh, checked out our website at realestateinvestingmastery.com, please go ahead and do so. We've got a fast cash survival kit that Joe and I have put together for you. It's basically a crash course in real estate wholesaling as well as uh, some outsourcing and, and using VAs, virtual assistants, to run your business for you for a very affordable price and uh, basically give you your life back. So if you're, if you're in a position where you're trying to change your life and, and get out of the 9 to 5 and escape the rat race, uh, this is for you because we show you how you can simply take control of a property that you don't necessarily own and uh, flip it for five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Or if this is something where you are in the business, you feel like you're just, bogged down by the details. We can show you how you can take a simple virtual assistant, uh, well, not a simple virtual assistant, but simply take a virtual assistant, plug them into your business, and they can run things for you from down to your marketing, to uh, to dealing with sellers, to making offers to sellers, to running comps, pulling reports, and really uh, putting you in a spot to where you can work on your business and not necessarily in your business. So, you there, Joe? Yeah, man. I, uh, I, I'm glad to know that you have your cell phone voice on today. My cell phone voice, not my radio voice? Not your radio voice, yes. <laughs> well, you know what? I liked what you had to say there, Alex. It's about lifestyle design, isn't it? It's about designing a life that you want first and then creating a business around the life that you want to have, right? That's right. That's right. And I was, <laughs> we have a special guest today, Patty Robertson, and I was asking her about you. Because you oh, invited her to the show, a real story. Yeah, and she. We'll ask her in a minute about you know kind of what a recluse you are. She's, well, she knows right because I'm in the I'm local. I'm in I'm in the uh, Hampton Roads market along with her. So yes, she'll definitely give you the true story. <laughs> <laughs> and and she was saying it's kind of funny that uh, you're you're kind you of said a recluse. <laughs> yeah, no, I I said that she didn't. <laughs> But you're doing a lot of deals, but nobody really hardly knows you because you're just not. You're kind of like me. I think that's maybe why we get along. Um, on a national, on a national, people know me nationally instead of locally. <laughs> <laughs> but Except I would, for my any type buyers that I work with and such, because you know I um, I have my small group of buyers that I work with, and I, again, I am my own buyer as well. So, yeah, uh, and I have systems put in place to where I'm not out there. Or, why, you know, on the grind in, in these houses and stuff like that. A lot of times the new construction projects we have going on, I've got a good, great team in place, so I don't really have to be out there. And 
you know, I, and I just, I guess I don't go to the, uh, to the national, to the local RIA meetings, um, for whatever reason, but, <laughs> and I, I guess that's why, but it's all good. I think that's the same for me here in St. Louis. I, I'm kind of more known because of the podcast around outside of St. Louis and I don't yeah. go to the RIAs, although I tell everybody that you should go to the RIAs. <laughs> yeah. And, and I should, I just don't like leaving in the evening to go somewhere. I'd yeah, well, that's what it is for me too. I mean, I've got four small children Yeah, me too. and we start around six o'clock when I call the bedtime train, you know? So <laughs> the bedtime train starts and we start putting kids to bed and you start with the mommy. I need a drink. Daddy, I need this. Daddy, I need that. And all this type of thing. And if I was to leave my wife all by herself with four children, you know, it can be a little bit crazy. That so. wouldn't be good. That wouldn't be good. But see, what what I wanted to bring up was everybody else out there listening to this has what they would see as their ideal lifestyle, right? You want to be That's home right. with your four kids, right? You want to work at home, and you want to be able to just hop in your um, Yugo and and go look at jobs <laughs> whenever you want, right? Right, right. So, well, you know... Um, that's why I love this business so much, and I'm sure Patty is the same because it'll it gives you the freedom to go do whatever you want. If I could, I I always joke around. I have three different offices. I have three offices, and I mostly I work from home, but I also have an office at Starbucks, and and I work at maybe two or three different Starbucks because I like to mix it up. And then I have an office in St. Louis where I rent, and I have my assistants that are working out of there. But um, I'm only in there maybe once a week, if that. And uh, yeah. I, you know, I can go work from an RV while we're traveling the country. I can go work from Hawaii if I want. And um, it's a beautiful thing. And, and God, God bless America because there's not very many other countries that give you the opportunities that we have here to do this. Absolutely. So, um, Absolutely. cool. So real quick, Alex, um, done any deals the last month? Last yeah, week? actually. Actually, um, I just closed. I don't know. Did I? I think I bored you with the last story of the last deal I did. The thirty. You always bore me with deal, your right? stories. <laughs> Which one are you talking and, about? And I was just uh, wrapping up a deal. I think it's like fifteen thousand dollars or something like that. Uh, it should be closing Wednesday. Um, and that was just, and, and both deals. Ready to get, go to sleep, Joe? Yeah. Okay. Um, go ahead. Um, both deals. <laughs> We're dealing with um, out-of-town sellers and actually all had gymnastics with trying to get them down here to get their stuff out of the house. And we're yeah. actually working with them to where they now have till this one has till the 30th to get their stuff out of the house. And you know, just working with people and trying to make it as smooth as possible, but you got to work with your buyers as well. So, well, you know, I've got some buyers that are flexible. So that's a definite plus. Good. That's really good. I, we've we've interviewed a guy named Mike Nelson before, and um, that's right on our podcast. And I think he's in the Virginia area somewhere, isn't he? Or that's where he lives. Yeah, he's in he's in Richmond. Richmond. That's one of my markets. Right, but yeah. he he does um, deals in about eight different markets. I saw him uh, a week ago here in St. Louis. He was here for an event, and uh, it's just great talking to him. And um, we're doing a lot of the same stuff where we're finding other wholesalers. To partner with and um that's a great system yeah yeah it's really cool and i'm we're going to be partnering together on uh, on a new course 
uh, talking about that. It's going to be a premium level course too, by the way. It's going to. It's not going to be cheap. Nice. I mean, our goal is only to sell a few of them um, because I just we just don't want a ton of competition. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I I'm really looking forward to that because just uh, t- t- a week ago I got a check from my partner in Memphis, Tennessee, and a mutual friend of ours, and they. I've been partnering with him on the marketing, and they did a deal. It was their first one that we've uh, done together, and it was about a $20,000 profit wholesale fee, $20,000 wholesaling fee. And, uh, you know, after costs, I got a nice check for about $9,000. Not a bad deal. And what did I do? I'm not trying to brag. I'm just, I I love this thing of lifestyle design. Well, you put the systems in motion is what you did. You worked. Smart. That's not you know that, and that's what it's all about. And I mean, Patty's great to talk to because she's all about franchising. So as we get talked to her a little further, you'll see she's got like um, a whole bunch of great clips, which is a haircutting place around here. I think still, you know, she's got tax places, and wow. she's really good at. She's she's a serial entrepreneur. Um, oh, and yeah, I did do one one other uh, deal over the weekend. I sold one of my new construction houses, so that would be a nice paycheck on the way. Well, congratulations, good job. Yes. And so, Patty, um, why don't you introduce Patty? How did you meet her, Alex? And um, and well, why was she... Uh, well, basically, I've worked... Um, I you know, did a little bit of introduction there, talking about her uh, franchising capabilities and what she's been doing. But I ran into Patty... Oh, boy. It was probably 2006, 2007. Um, I talked to her on the phone, and I'm trying to think how we... How we met, we met up, but I know she was one of the new Homebusters franchisees in the area. Um, and I think we had briefly talked. Um, and then just along the way, I, I had popped in here and there to some, uh, to some, some tra- uh, RIA group meetings. Um, and, uh, we never really butted heads on any deals or anything, but, um, just along the way, uh, you know, we just, she's just, you know, as a Homebusters franchisee. Um, that's one of the well-known uh, people in the area, and 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 just along the way, we've kind of chatted and stuff. So it's, we haven't really done any deals together or anything like that. But um, I just know she's a really good businesswoman in the area, and you can learn a lot, learn a lot from her. Um, she's she's kind of transitioned from the wholesaling and rehabbing game now to uh, holding on to properties. And I met her the other day at a uh, one of the appliance superstores in the area had a big thing going on and I saw her there and, and, you know, it intrigued me what she was talking about. You know, she's like, well, you know, no, I'm not really wholesaling or rehabbing, but I'm trying to keep everything that I can. And, you know, I've got this big rental portfolio and maybe 10 years will be paid off and she'll be sitting pretty. So nice. Is that about sum it up, Patty? That's right. That's the goal. <laughs> Absolutely. So Patty, um, you, you, you sounds like you, um, you own a Homevestors franchise. Um, I don't. I, you might be the first one that we've interviewed that actually owns a Homevestors franchise. Although I have, we have a lot of friends that do. Homevestors does some pretty amazing things. Yeah, it's a big brand. They're growing. You know, they they've made some changes to the franchise model and made it a lot easier for folks to get in. So it's. I think they're up to almost fran- five hundred franchisees around the country now. Wow! Wow! Yeah. So, well, Patty, why don't you talk about how you got started in real estate? What what made you interested in it? Okay, I accidentally got into real estate. Um, as Alex mentioned, my husband and I have a couple different franchise brands. Uh, we have some Jackson Hewitts, 
and some great clips, hair salons, and we were just shopping for a third brand. The income tax industry is going through some transitions, and we wanted a long-term replacement of that income because the Internet is really eating away at the retail tax model. And so we went to a franchise broker and, you know, so we want a third franchise brand and Homevestors ended up on the list. So we had no idea, uh, you know, we weren't intentionally getting into real estate. Um, started off as a wholesaler. I think that's how I met Alex in the beginning and transitioned into doing rehabs and now have, uh, you know, as I have met so many people across the country who have um, developed wealth in real estate, all of them have done it with a rental portfolio. So we just sort of, you know, kept going and I still do a little bit of each of the others, but our focus mostly on rentals and, uh, you know, we're trying to keep as many as we can. Now, Patty, you, you were in different types of businesses and industries. When you decided to go into Homevestors, did, did you have to do a lot of the day-to-day stuff yourself? Were you the one actually taking the calls and meeting with sellers and persons? In person, or did you set up systems and people to do all that for you? We we we've scaled back since then, but no, we started out with a team. Um, home investors at the time encouraged us to do that, so we had office staff. I had salespeople that went out and met with sellers, and uh, you know now we've we're not doing as much wholesaling and rehabbing, so we scaled that back, and we still have office staff. They just focus on different things. And now when we're meeting with sellers, it's, it's usually my husband or I who's going out to meet with them. Okay. So what, but, what, what made you catch the real estate bug? I mean, Well, I'll tell you what happened to us, and hopefully, knock on wood, not very many people have experienced this, but we, um, in 2005, started investing in real estate and thought, we don't know anything about real estate. You know, we try to focus on the things we know and hire out the things we don't know. And uh, so we decided that we really should diversify into real estate some. So we put our money with a big uh, uh, conglomerate that was buying shopping centers, hotels, that sort of thing. They were based out of Chicago. They had offices all over the country. Um, They had a they did most of their fundraising out of the Norfolk market, big fancy office building. And in 2008, the SEC came in and shut them down and declared a declared it a Ponzi. So we oh, lost wow. ta- we lost almost our whole retirement. And oh my goodness! Yeah, at that point we. You know, fortunately, we were still young. Most of the folks in the Ponzi, there were 1,400 other investors. Most of them were were elderly people who lost everything. So we, and we were fortunate. Pardon? All your they just stopped you? We, we've got, well, the, we, the, the, the odd thing is that we really owned real estate. You know, we had shopping centers, hotels. There were real assets there, but the guys were crooks. So they raised to a total of $220 million and a hundred million of it that they diverted to themselves. And what was left was, uh, you know, they, and they bought at the height of the market. They didn't buy right. And in 2008, everything came to a halt. So projects were half done. Contractors weren't paid. So it was just, it was a calamity of errors. They, uh, the government appointed a rookie receiver, young attorney who had never had a receivership before and knew nothing about real estate. And so we got back, we initially, we got two, back, we've gotten about 2% of our money. We're actually at the point that it's, we're ringing it down as we speak. 
Uh, today, actually, we're sending our feedback to the judge for our final distribution. We may get another 5% back, but essentially it's all gone. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So we decided at that point that um, if we were going to do real estate again, it was going to be by ourselves. And we had joined Homevestors because we wanted the third franchise brand in 2007. And so, you know, my personal, personal, we don't partner with anyone anymore. Uh, I'm too nervous to do that. I had folks that I thought were, you know, they were running the, um, they were deacons in the Orthodox Jewish community. You know, they were um, people I thought were reputable people and they were crooks. So it made us a little gun shy. And so that was how we started. And then, um, then we joined Homevestors and just, you know, we like the franchise model in general. You, we just do what we're told and uh, we started wholesaling and rehabbing and, and holding rentals. And at this point, our goal is to get our rental portfolio um, paid off. I ended up getting my real estate license and then kept going and have become a broker. And we've, we're now doing uh, also property management for other folks as well. It was just a natural transition. When you, when you get, you know, past 10 or so, you need folks to help help uh, support the rentals. So we had staff to support our own. So it was a natural transition to go into property management. And now we manage for other owners as well. So Patty, with these other businesses that you have, um, do you still have the other franchises? I'm just curious. Yeah, we have four Jackson Hewitts, 12 Great Clips, um, our rental portfolio and the property management business. And this sounds crazy, but my husband just opened a fourth franchise brand with, with a couple partners, people, you know, Alex local, um, what is he doing? American title loans on the Boulevard, Virginia. Beach. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so how do you keep wow. it all together? I mean, how do you, well, we have staff. So I, I focus most of my time on real estate. My husband runs the Jackson Hewitts. I oversee the Great Clips, but I have area managers in place. So I have folks that run that business and we, um, you know, we do all the bookkeeping in house. So we have two bookkeepers who keep us posted in that aspect and we just, we, we supervise, we delegate. We have to delegate everything. And, you know, quite honestly, everything doesn't always get done when it should, if it's my responsibility. So, um, you know, you just do the best you can. The goal is to grow, uh, to, you know, grow these assets so that um, we get all our debt paid off. And then, you know, we don't plan to do this many things forever. So my goal is to get down to the point that we just have the great clips and the rental property. And that will be called, for me, that'll be retirement. Okay. Now, now is Great Clips a national brand? Oh, this, it's the largest brand in North America. There's 3,600 stores. Do you have any by you, Joe? Pardon? Uh, great Clips? Yeah, Great Clips. Oh, yeah, I, I go to them sometimes. Um, uh, oh, there you go. Yeah. Where are you, Joe? St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, yeah, there's, yeah, they're huge in St. Louis. Uh-huh. Okay, we're back. We just had a little uh, technical difficulties, and we have Patty on the line now. She also has her cell phone voice on. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Patty, we were talking about franchises, and uh, it's always fascinated me, that business, um, because there's some good franchises out there and some bad ones. You probably are really good at creating systems and getting other people to do that stuff and run those businesses for you. Is that right? 
Well, the the nice thing about a franchise is that they give you most of the system. You know, the the system that inter- interacts with the consumer, yeah. but you still have to create that. No matter what business you're in, even with a franchise, you still have to create your own backroom systems. And if you want to scale scale large, you you generally can't do that by yourself, right? Unless you want to work, you know, twenty four hours a day. So um, we we've hired staff to help us. Well, I guess a good people's a good skill you got to have is people skills, and and you got to be good at finding good people and and managing them. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Same with tenants. Yeah, because that relates to property management. Now, why do you? You talked a little bit about building wealth, but why do you like holding a bunch of rental properties? Aren't they a big pain in the butt? Because <laughs> I know I what some people are thinking. Uh, oh, I, I love people who think like you because that's how, you know, a big reason we're able to buy houses. Right. But I think it's fun. I think it's fun. And if it's not fun, that's what property managers are for. Uh-huh. You think about the, the great description that somebody gave me one day was, okay, I've got a hundred grand to invest. If I want to take it to the stock market today, what? tell me what stocks I can buy at 60, 70 cents on the dollar. Hmm. None of them. Or which but, stocks can I buy and then add value to the stocks and make them go up? That too, exactly. But if I, I can buy a rental house at a discounted price, so I have instant equity there. And then if I if I put a tenant in place, I generally have to come out with a little bit of money up front for the purchase and repairs. But all of the payments after that are made by somebody else. So tell me what we're other than a four hundred one k where your employer is contributing, and that's a little bit. What other retirement vehicle is somebody else going to pay for? Yeah. None. So it's 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 almost a free retirement vehicle. That's what I like about it. Well, and. Not you're not even talking yet about the tax benefits of owning real estate, right? Correct. Yeah, there are tax benefits, but I can get the tax benefits out of opening a salon too. Okay. But when I'm opening a salon, I'm doing that with all my own money, or you know, loans I have to repay. So I don't have. Um, I guess you can say consumers are are paying it indirectly, like a tenant, but it's it doesn't feel the same. With in a rental property. It feels more like I'm getting a gift from my tenants every month they pay my mortgage, which is, you know, one step closer to me having no debt. Right. Okay, so ideally that's the way it's supposed to work. But still, how do you avoid, Patty, or how do you minimize the the inevitable problems that do come with owning rental property? Like, you know, vacancies and repairs or what kind of areas are you investing in? I I typically I'll buy almost in any area, but I want to get a good return on my money. Okay. And so I'm I'm you know I started out like everybody and said I only want to be in in our you know the, the top two cities of our market and for our area that'd be Virginia Beach or Chesapeake. And then I quickly learned that yeah I could buy rental property in those areas, but I'm going to pay a lot for yeah. them and rents are not significantly more than they are in the other cities. Yeah. So I've um, you know I learned from my uh, landlord, um, you know, friends that are willing to go to the inner city or do more lower end rentals that there's a lot of money to be made in the, um, you know, more of the working class neighborhoods. So there are very few places in our market that I absolutely won't buy. There's basically one neighborhood in every city that I'll avoid that I won't buy in. Other than that, I'll buy any place that fits my criteria. And we, uh, we like Section 8 rentals. 
Uh, we like the government paying the rent. We like the tenants. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about Section 8 um, that I'd be willing to share as we go yeah. through the call if you want, if you like like me to. But I like the stability of that. They tend to stay a lot longer than other tenants. Um, the rents are strong in, in most of our cities. Again, that's, that's municipality dependent. But um, So that's what we look for. I look for, um, you know, preferably three bedrooms or more. You know, the, always it's just like with a flip, you know, you, the more bathrooms, the better, but I'm not going to get more rent for that extra bathroom. So, um, you know, I like the, I just like to get a good purchase to rent ratio when I'm buying. Well, let's talk about some of your criteria when you're looking at property, Patty, that you, you did mention three plus bedrooms. Um, and there are certain areas you just stay away from, but you're pretty open to everything else. What other criteria do you mm-hmm. have? Mine is mostly a financial criteria. I have a number that I want to be all in at to to achieve a certain rent. So in my market right now, and granted, the prices are inching up a little bit. We're all feeling the squeeze and prices are going up. But right today, I want to be, for a three-bedroom house, I'd like to be all in with purchase and repairs at 70 or less. A four-bedroom house, I want to be all in with purchase and repair at 80 grand or less. So if I can do that, I can make the numbers work. So what are the numbers that you – do you look at ROI? Do you look at net cash flow? My, well, I know for a three – I'm looking at ratio of purchase price. So I, my three bedrooms, I know I can get twelve in most cities, $1,200 a month in rent. Four wow. bedrooms, I can get about $1,500 a month in rent. So, um, you know, it used to be the old-fashioned, old-time landlord rent rule, and it still is in some higher-priced markets like Washington, D.C., or higher-end markets. Uh, the rent rule is they want to be no more than 100 times the rent. Well, in our market, if you go in the right neighborhoods, we can get a lot better ratio than that. So that's really fantastic. I mean, a four-bedroom, you can get 1500 a month in rent for under $80,000. Section 8 is paying, yeah, and it's hard to find those. Section 8 is paying $1,500 in our market for four bedrooms. All right. So but would you, for that, that, that's really good numbers. I, we're not seeing that in St. Louis. But um, could you get, would you buy a house all in for $100,000 and get Section 8 1500 a month in rent? I'd have to think long and hard about that. It would depend on what kind of financing I was putting on it. You know, if I my preferences to put five-year money on them, in which case it would, it would be hard for me to to do that. Okay. Um, so if I was, if I was getting longer term financing, I could, I could maybe consider, but okay. I would just look for a different house. So section eight gives you vouchers or gives the tenant a voucher, right? Right. And let's say, you know, you've got a four bedroom house and you're like, okay, I want $1,500 a month for this house. The tenant still has a choice of obviously where they're going to go with the Section 8 program or like if somebody was to charge less rent, even though their, like their portion is like what? Can sometimes be a full 100%, could be 200 bucks a month or what? How does that work? Yeah, it's 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 one hundred percent dependent on the tenant. It's called a how the Section Eight program is called the Housing Choice Voucher Program. So what that means is the tenant gets a voucher and they can choose the house that they want to live in as long as the landlord is willing to accept a Section Eight voucher. And there's right. a couple requirements of the program: uh, they can't they can't have felonies, they can't have any drug um, 
charges. They have to be working, so they can't just sit home collecting, you know, checks unless they're disabled. Um, and then Section 8 re- re- requires, or their guideline is that the tenant should be able to afford to spend at least 30% of their income on their housing needs. So I have one particular tenant right now who is a Section 8 recipient holder, but the Section 8 pays zero of the rent. She has enough income that they are able to pay 100% of the rent. Um, and it ranges from zero, like in that case, to I have other tenants that are paying their between jobs or stuff happens and they're paying 100% of the rent. So the nice the nice thing about Section 8 is with a regular tenant, let's say that I've had a couple of military tenants lately who uh, the military has said, no, you know, I know you have 16 years in, but we're cutting you out. You don't have the option to, to stick around until retirement anymore. You know, you get people who are between jobs, and in the real world, when you're between a job, nobody's there to give you a handout and help you out with your with your with your rent or your mortgage because you lost your job, um, other than unemployment. But with Section Eight, if they have a change of income, either their hours are reduced or they lost their job, they're between jobs. They just go in and put an application, and the landlord is protected, and Section 8 changes the amount of their subsidy, and it could increase it to 100%. So it's a it's a protection for the landlord who is willing to accept the Section 8 voucher. Now, Patty... But most tenants pay something. I've, I've heard people either have a love relationship with Section 8 or absolutely hate it. Why, why do some people hate Section 8 so much? Before I was landlording, you know, a decade or so ago, I think the Section 8 program was different. I hear people talk about how their houses were trashed or, you know, there are there are bad people in every segment of society. But it, what's changed about the Section 8 program from before is that they all of the offices, I think the Internet has probably helped this, all of the Section 8 offices around the country are now connected. So somebody can't um, screw up in my market and then decide they're going to move to Missouri and take advantage in your market. If when a Section 8 tenant tells me they want to leave my property, and generally that only happens, I'm a good landlord, I have good houses, so most people stay a long time. But if they do leave, it's usually because their voucher size changes. But when they tell me they're going to leave, Section 8 then sends me a questionnaire and says, is this person in good standing? Do they owe you any money for rent? And do they owe you any money for repairs? If I say they owe me money, their vouchers put on hold. They can't get that paperwork to move to the next place until until they've made right by me. So because oh, of that, good. it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because of that, and you, the other the other thing I like is that Section Eight inspects the houses a couple times a year, and because of that process, the tenants become educated on the inspection process. And as a landlord that wants to protect the property, that benefits me. So when the sink is leaking, you know, in my, um, the cabinet underneath, as opposed to waiting six months to let me know, like a regular tenant would likely do, and by that point it's already rotten, the Section 8 tenant calls right away and lets us know about things that are broken in the house. Uh, and I like that. I want to protect my property. You know, I had a one of my horror stories from landlording was I had three um, Navy officers, pilots, great guys in a higher-end rental house, 
and they called one day and said, you know, we can't get, we have mold on our medicine cabinet, we can't get it to go away. So I went out and looked, and they had, it was, there was mold every place. It was a house with radiator heat, and uh, the insurance company thinks in one of the pipes and one of the walls had a, uh, just pr- sprung a leak, and it was spraying hot water in this house, and I had to replace, it was a, a hardwood floors, it was crazy. It was a $30,000 insurance claim. Because oh, they, man. you know, they didn't pay attention. They didn't care. They just sprayed mildew remover on it, wiped it off. That never would have happened with a Section 8 tenant. So Now, you still, there's some, when you advertise your houses, do you advertise them as Section 8? If it's in a lower neighborhood and I, and I want to focus on Section 8, I put my regular ads out and I say Section 8 okay. And, so and when then you, I also... Uh-huh. There are plate Section 8 lists. Like, you know, I can go on the Section 8 list and advertise on the Section 8 website as well. But the advertisement is, is generic. It goes out on the Internet. And so when you get – I mean, I, I imagine one of the problems – one of the reasons why people have so many problems with Section 8 is because they just don't do a good job pre-screening their applicants, right? So, Right. And we screen I, – I have to screen pre I, – I screen Section 8 applicants as well. Yes. You know, I want – I want to get the higher rents for the market. And, and I know in order to do that, I have to have people that work real jobs. Working a minimum wage job for 20 hours a week is not going to cut it. You know, that they'll, they'll have the whole voucher, but I'm not going to get the maximum rent that I want. So I screen my Section 8 tenants just like I do a regular tenant with the exception of the income requirement. Okay. and Which is important, I think, is you, you can reject... Section 8 applicants, right, if they don't meet your minimum qualifications? Yes, yes. However, some some states are looking at, there's legislation pending right now in some areas of the country that um, landlords may not be able to discriminate from someone's income source from a rental standpoint. So right now, uh, landlords can even say, no, I don't want to take Section 8. A lot of landlords do. And they can just immediately screen out somebody because they have a voucher. There's legislation in, in a couple states in place right now that will prohibit landlords from doing that. As long as you're using, you know, standard consistent screening criteria, you can screen them, and you should screen them just like you do any other tenant. Interesting. No. Okay. Um, is there a good source, Patty, that you send people to who are interested in learning more about Section Eight? Uh, the local Section Eight offices. Our office. Uh, all of our municipalities have um, a orienta- landlord orientation class once a month. Okay. So if they just call their local housing office and find out when the orientation classes are, they're free. They take about an hour, and they'll learn everything they need to know. Very cool. Uh, Patty, how many, if you don't mind us asking, maybe you can use general numbers, uh, how many properties do you own right now? I have a little over 40 houses right now. Awesome. And how many of those are Section 8? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know that off the top of my head. I'm managing about 150, and probably 60 of them are Section 8. Okay. I want to I ask you about when you have these many properties, uh, what are some of the systems that you put in place or that you recommend people to have to manage those and to manage them well? Mm-hmm. Um, a, a good lease is really important. 
Um, good documentation systems are very important. I subscribe, uh, we use a software called Propertyware. There's a lot of um, good property management software out there and are very similar. Um, but being able to um, track every conversation with a tenant, all your pieces of paper, um, you've got to know what your what your landlord laws are in your state so that you make sure you follow them. Um, and then, you know, obviously proper screening. You've got to have a consistent, you want to be really careful about, just like employment law with tenant screening, that you treat everybody the same. You have standard policies so that uh, you don't get accused of discrimination. It, it's so easy to do. Um, and then making sure you know all, all the real estate laws. I can't screen people to certain neighborhoods or screen them away from certain neighborhoods. Um, you just got to gotta know what you can say legally and what you can't say. Okay. And do you, do you do much of this managing stuff yourself? I mean, you, you, what kind of team do you need to have around you? Obviously this property where software, I have seen that before. It is really good. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I have Podio apps that I use to manage properties. Um, mm-hmm. But um, what kind of people do you need in your office to manage 150 properties? How many what kind of staff yeah. do you need to have? Yeah, I have a I have a leasing agent and I have a property manager and we have some administrative staff, bookkeepers and um well one bookkeeper that does the real estate and then handyman. Um and then I just oversee to make sure everything is done. We have one thing that's different for me because I do have property management is I have owners to worry about. So I have another element that you wouldn't have in creating owner statements and making sure owners are money's always accounted for and they're communicated with so they know what's going on. So I do have to have a little bit more staff than uh, somebody else would if they if all the if they're all my own properties. Now w- owning a property management business is there a certain it's not a huge money maker, I would guess. No. Um, is there a certain number of properties that you would need to have before you really start making good money with it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess it depends on your overhead. I because I had a a lease that I personally guaranteed. This is um, you know related to our other businesses. I have a, a fairly high overhead for rent. Um, but so your 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 rent would be a strong driver in that. Okay. You know, if I uh, ran out of my house or a uh, you know an inexpensive office place, I wouldn't I wouldn't have nearly as high of a break even as I have when I have I've got an expensive I'm in a you know a big huge um, uh, shopping center. Yeah. So. But I like the fact that Patty, you're managing the properties yourself in house. Um, because people a lot of times complain about having to manage the property manager, and um, so, well, yeah, when yeah. when I bought the first properties, they were and again, my husband and I believe in hiring experts. We hire out and you know outsource the things that that are not our areas of expertise. So when we bought the first properties that we bought, it was a package. It was a couple duplexes, a single family home, and a garage with spaces that we rent for storage and they were being managed by a very, very reputable property manager in our marketplace. And so we left her in place and I was, as I was running, you know, putting out my credit for ads for my wholesale deals, we had three vacancies over there and for weeks had these vacancies and I was putting out my ads one weekend for my wholesale deals. And I said, you know what? And I had been putting my 
rental ads out with her phone number on, Chrysler said. I said, let's, let's put our phone number on these ads and, and just see what happens. And we had three, we, re- we rented three units in one weekend. And at that point, I decided, you know, uh, maybe we ought to learn how to do this ourselves and bring it in-house. All property manage- managers are, are not created equal. I find that most professional property managers are not landlords nor are they really business people. They're folks who, who, who know real estate, but not, they don't really know how to maximize cash flow. And, uh, you know, that's, I think one of the benefits that we have is I, I, I think of it like a business and, um, and you know, what can we do to maximize the income in each one of the properties? That's so huge. I I have some good friends who owned about 20 rental properties and, Mm -hmm. um, they were constantly complaining about the property management company and not, they were always managing the manager. And when they mm-hmm. finally stepped back and said, you know what, let's just do it ourselves. And they hired an assistant to mm-hmm. do it all for them. And that assistant was about the same amount of cost as the property management was. But mm-hmm. that assistant was just that it was a part-time assistant, just dedicated to managing their 20 properties. And, mm-hmm all of a sudden they realized this isn't that hard. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we can do this ourselves. And they started implementing systems in place and they actually enjoyed it. It wasn't the pain and hassle and headache that it was before because they knew what was going on and they were able Mm -hmm. to fix problems sooner. They were able to fill vacancies faster and uh, just became uh, a much easier business for them and more profitable. And so I've always mm-hmm. encouraged people, and I'm not knocking property managers because there are good property managers out there, and they are necessary. But think about if you have rental property, think about bringing on a part-time assistant and doing it yourself. I don't think it's that difficult. Here's an interesting question for you. Remember we had, um, oh, I can't remember his name, but uh, Refi Till You Die? Yes, Jason Hartman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so Patty, you've got all your properties, let's say... Um, you, uh, you've got them paid off or, or actually you don't have them paid off, but you just keep refinancing them and leveraging them to the max until you die. So you can have tax free refinance income, if that makes sense. Is that something you'd want to do or you'd rather have them paid all paid off? No, I, you know, everybody, there's so many different philosophies in, well, in real estate and in rentals, um, our goal is to get them paid off. If I've got to pay a little bit more in tax, so be it. You know, I mean, it's a terrible situation to have to make money and pay tax, but I, I would rather, oh, yeah. our, our goal is to have them paid off. You know, likewise, some some people, um, they call them slumlords, prefer to buy properties and never put a dime in them. They would rather, you know, have dilapidated properties and do rent-to-owns and uh, take a little bit of cash up front and have people in them that supposedly may, might fix them up and might um, yeah. someday buy them. Um, you know, that's not what I choose to do. I buy them. I fix them up when I buy them. And, you know, they're too, they're, neither are, are, it's not that either philosophy is good or bad. It's just you've got to pick one. And I prefer, you know, I prefer to have nicer properties and not deal with properties that are dilapidated. But there's a lot yeah. of different choices that people make. But well, it's a personal rather- decision. I'd rather not have $4.5 million of debt sitting on my head if we, you know, we just say $100,000 per property and try to, Me uh, too. even though it's tax-free. But <laughs> right. Yeah, those, if, you're, if you're curious listening to this, a few episodes back, we did a really good interview with Jason Hartman, 
and his philosophy is to refinance till you die. And it's interesting, and not everybody would agree with that. But yeah, check that out a few episodes ago. It was it was a very uh, informative interview. Um, so, Patty, are you these properties are? If you don't mind us asking, are you getting bank financing with them? Are you getting private money using your own money? How are you doing this? Yeah, it's a really important question to ask because that's the hardest part. Uh, and I'll I'll tell you that what, what I wish I had known in the beginning, people can learn from my mistake here, is that, uh, you know, right now you can have 11 Freddie Fannie loans. So traditional, you know, 30-year loans, but only if you get them first. So I right now, I, own, I only have six Freddie Fannie loans. By the time I learned that, I had too many mortgages. The bank's... Uh, when you're rehabbing, you get credit lines, and the banks make it really easy to just roll properties off your credit line, and they put it on a rental line. And so we did that a whole bunch of times, over and over and over. And before I knew it, I had too many loans, or too many owned too many houses to be able to get, um, you know, any more 30-year loans. But I, I recently was doing some research from for a friend of mine, and found that. In 2012, uh, Freddie raised the limit to 20. So you have your primary home, then you can have 10 investment properties, and then you can have loans 11 through 20 um, if you purchase HUD houses. So they have to be HUD-owned houses. They will provide financing for investors for up to 20 loans. So I'm, I'm searching right now for a lender to do that. I have, I have an underwriter working on it. But according to the HUD website, that is accurate as of 2012. Wow. But for, for, my, for myself, um, we use all gamuts. So sometimes we buy them with, and the seller finances them. I do have some pr- private sources. Uh, I'm still using bank loans. I'm, you know, using commercial loans. So we just... Um, couple weeks ago, did a uh, refinance of seven properties and purchased a new one. So we did an, an eight-property balloon. It's uh, a 20-year amortization with a five-year call with one point that was rolled into the loan, 4.75% interest, and I came out of pocket zero for that purchase. I bought a new, brand-new property, brand-new rental, because I rolled it into this bucket loan I, I came to the table with nothing out of pocket and had a tenant in it, um, you know, the day we closed on it. Good for you. Patty, how do you run your numbers? Um, what do you set aside every month for vacancies and repairs and maintenance? How do you budget money for the unforeseen stuff? Yeah, you know, the banks are going to have you set aside 25% of your income for vacancy and repairs. When that's really important when you have, you know, one to six or seven rental properties. Once you get to 10 rental properties, hopefully you have enough cash flow that you can you can inherently handle that. Once you get over 10, it becomes much easier to handle the vacancy and repair issues because you have enough cash flow. So it's, that's really a, something that's hard when you're a small landlord. It okay. gets much easier as you grow. So when, when you're looking at your numbers, though, it was interesting. I saw that you just you just look mainly at a rent to purchase price ratio. But uh, do you look at like a cash on cash return that you want? And when you're looking at an ROI, do you figure um, taking out you know 50% of the rent to cover 
taxes, insurance, vacancies, repairs. The banks require 25%, but is that enough for you? Uh, we have enough. Honestly, we have enough cash flow with our properties. I don't, you know, we're fine. I don't okay. have to worry about that every time I, I, every time I buy one. What I'm focusing more when I buy one is what kind of financing am I putting on it and how long can I get, you know, how, how long before I get it paid off. So um, I want to have the numbers low enough so that I can get it paid off, and preferably in five years, but no more than 10 years. Okay, but you have obviously set aside, you have reserves. So if there was vacancies or repairs, you're not going to be scrambling for money or having to go borrow. No, money. we are we're 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 cash flowing nicely. So we're you know, we're using that extra cash flow to pay down mortgages. If I have to replace an air conditioning unit, I you know, I'll use it for, for that instead. We actually replaced three air conditioning units this year. Nice. So talk to somebody yeah, though, who's not real nice, but well, well, that's like what fifteen thousand dollars. <laughs> no, they weren't. I had one. I, I got I got lucky with my replacements, but I've got a good AC guy. I got I had to buy two new ones. One I was able to get used. Yeah. Well, what I'm talking there about nice was um, having the money to pay for that. Oh yeah, it's going to have to get yeah, done re- sometime. Yeah, and a lot of them. When we take out the initial loans, I use home investors loans or or private money loans that are very expensive interest rates. You know, when you're, and then when I refinance them and do a 4.75 interest rate amortized over 20 years, cash flow frees up greatly. So it depends Absolutely. on the financing you have available to you. Okay. So talk to, talk to somebody who wants to start buying rental properties right now, Patty. Um, what would you recommend to them? I would recommend they start talking to folks about money. So if they are credit worthy, they should, the, the, you know, the, 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 Easiest, cheapest place to get money is from the banks and credit unions. If they, uh, you know, if they don't have the ability to get bank loans, they're gonna they're gonna go the same place they're gonna go if they're if they're a rehabber. You know, they, most of your private money sources or hard money sources aren't gonna do rental loans, but those guys with retirement accounts, um, you know, the the private money loans are still ava- are available for. For um, for rental property, so just it's a, again a, an individual decision depending on the credit worthiness and assets of each borrower. Right, and so when, when somebody who's new and getting started, though, would you be what would you be advising them to set aside of of, of their rent every month to put aside for reserves? Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the new owners that we take on, I mean, I, I hope they have at least three months of rent set aside because even, even a rental turn, I don't, I've never had a rental turn where somebody moved out and somebody else moved in where we've spent zero, you know, we always have to do something. So um, to have three or four months set aside would be prudent if you only have a few rental properties or if your cash flow is really tight. We've got a lot of accidental landlords in the market right now who bought when the market was high, they had to relocate. So they're sitting on mortgages that are, at or above what their rents are. So they really have to have enough cash set aside so that if they miss rent one month because they're either between tenants or the tenant gets behind, that they still have the ability to make their mortgage payment. I just can't stress enough the importance of that because when I was getting started and I had a lot of rental properties, I don't know, it was probably my fault, but I didn't feel like the gurus that were teaching this stuff back then made it, stressed it enough how important it is to have Mm -hmm. reserves. 
Because when a property mm-hmm. goes vacant, and it will, or when the repairs are needed, and they will happen, um, I was always f- scrambling and freaking out looking for money. Um, and and mm-hmm. then freaking out and when there was a vacancy because I had to make a mortgage payment and there's no rent coming in. Mm-hmm. And remembering that that deposit money really yeah. needs to go in an escrow account, not in your pocket. You know, uh-huh. legally it's supposed to, but so many times, uh, you know, small landlords don't, don't, you know, when I take them over to manage, I'll say, okay, the tenants moved out now, where's the deposit? And they don't have it. You know, it's not set aside. So you'll never find that with a licensed agent, hopefully. But a lot of small new landlords treat that as their own money when it's not. It's the tenant's money. So it is important to have have the tenant's deposit available and, and have your own cash reserves. You know, this reminds me, Alex, do you remember when we talked to uh, Steve Cook about debt-free investing? And, and Steve, yeah. Steve comes from a different philosophy of, Getting staying completely out of debt, but he had an interesting perspective on how to build a rental portfolio without getting into debt. And um, I thought it was really interesting by partnering, right? right? By partnering with another person and being like, "Okay, I'm going to find these deals. I'm going to we're going to get 20 properties, and then the way we split off at the end is you keep 10 and I keep 10, and yeah. now you're 10 or debt free." <laughs> well, I think it. it <laughs> It looks good on paper. I'm sure it's harder to do in reality, but it can be done, right? Yeah, is that fair? I don't know. I, I don't know if that's fair necessarily. I'm going to use all your money, and then um, I'm well, going to end up with 10 debt-free properties. Well, here's how it I works. I don't know. Because it should yeah, be ahead. the same. Go, go through it the quick version. The quick version. It should be the same because um, if you find a, a private money partner and say, look, I, mm-hmm. I, I need I, – here's a property. It's a good deal. We're getting it. At the we're paying eighty for it all in, and it rents for fifteen hundred. That's a good deal, and it shouldn't be hard to find private money on that. But instead of borrowing mm-hmm. the money, where I'm paying you monthly payment every month, Mister Investor, um, we're just going to split everything fifty fifty. We're going to split the equity mm-hmm. and the cash flow fifty fifty. I'll manage the property, and um, there'll there'll be some. We'll, we'll deduct the money for my my management expenses, but uh, the cash flow will split fifty fifty. And the equity in the deal will split 50-50. And so the idea is you find 20 of those properties with a private investor. And you're splitting everything 50-50, but I'm doing 100% of the management. I'm finding the deals. I'm managing it. And then at the end, after you have 20, you say, all right, Mr. Investor, you pick the 10 best properties, and I'll take the 10 best properties, and we'll part ways. And um, mm-hmm. then you have you get the you get 10 free and clear properties. And the numbers, because you're splitting the cash flow and the equity, are the same after the split. So the investor still gets 50%. Now they have 100% of 50%, which is the same as what they had before. But they actually getting Mm -hmm. the better end because they're picking the 10 best properties. And it's quite interesting. It's a different way to think of things. And I'm just throwing that out there for anybody listening to, to think about. You don't have to go into a ton of debt or leverage to buy properties. If you're finding these deals good enough, um, you should be able to find private money for it. And don't even maybe look at it differently and maybe think about, I don't have to borrow the money. I can partner with somebody. And, um, and that way, the beautiful thing about it is this, if there is a vacancy, you don't have a mortgage payment to pay. And if there are repairs that are needed, there's money set aside. That's part of the acquisition costs there's money set aside in a reserve account 
that the private investor pays for to pay for those repairs. Does that make sense? And yeah. what, do, what do you think about that? For what do you, yeah, what do you think about that? Going to a private investor and um, saying, we're going to get 20 properties, and at the end of the day, I'm going to do all the work, and at the end, but how long down the line is it so, to where these are going to be paid off, Joe, or what, what, what's, how does that work? Well, they're, they're all paid off at the beginning. I mean, there is yeah, no. Uh, yeah, there is no. Yeah, you're right. So it's, you know, I, we'd have to ask Steve how he, how he approaches it. But it, it, you're, the investor bottom line is getting a better return than they would if they were lending the money. It, they're, they're getting right. way better than 8% or 10% or whatever. So it, it, in that case, it, it does win. The key to it is finding the good deals. And you've got to, it's got to be a good deal that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. food for thought, something to think about. And, um, but Patty, um, this is really important because you got to find the good deals to make it happen. And, and you, obviously you you wouldn't be paying them off in five years if they weren't good deals to begin with. Right. So right. how do you find those good deals? What's your, what's your secret magic trick? Well, a lot of them were home investor leads. Um, and then the traditional ways, you know, we buy a lot of them from other wholesalers. You know, I don't care what the other wholesalers making on the DX, bring me some deals. Um, you know, I'm happy to pay the wholesaler (laughs) as long as bring, you've never bought me a deal or my deals, but as long as, you know, it meets my number. I got to find you one. Find me one. And, um, and MLS. So same places, you know, it's, it's getting harder now. There's a lot of competition. I'm sure in every market, in our market, there's a tremendous amount of competition. But um, you know, we're we're having to raise our buy number a little bit. But we're still looking. Always, the best source is always going to be the house that's not listed that nobody that nobody knows about. Now, with home investors, um, you you pool all your money together, and who determines the marketing that gets done? The ad council, the franchisees determine that. You know, with a recommendation from the corporate office. Okay, so are, is it a certain area, metro area, you guys get together, what, once a month, once a quarter, and decide how, where the money will be Each spent? Each month, yeah. Each month there's a new budget, yeah, and it's based on the advertising DMA, basically, where the television and radio hit. Uh, within a market, people pool their money and then um, share in the leads distribution based you, on their share of the advertising. Are you required to do certain types of marketing? No, you're saying, are you required to use one vehicle versus another? Well, yeah. Do they say, look, you have to do something, you have to do billboards, no. or you have to do radio? Or no, something? no, they don't. No, each ad council, you know, they're very analytical, so they decide each market is different. You know, billboards work better in some markets than other. Radio works better in some markets than other. So they have the ability to look at the performance levels over all the markets in the country. And uh, every market has their own plan based on the dollars that they're spending. Okay. What have you found is working really well right now? It's a good question because right this second, I have, I'm not advertising with homebusters right this second. Um, okay. The, the other guys are um, that are wholesaling are, we're still doing billboards and direct mail. We're not doing any electronic media in this market, but obviously all the online sources do. Same thing is that everybody's doing pretty much the same advertising. One thing I've always wondered about Homevestors is how do you know when a call comes in because you use the same number in your direct mail and your billboards, radio ads? It's a very high-tech rotating system. Yeah. No, no. I mean, like, how do you know when the call comes in where the lead came from? 
Because they're not all the same number. We have a lot of different numbers. Okay. Well, the billboards all have the 844, whatever it is. Buyers, yeah. The, the, yeah. yeah, the, yeah the, the billboards and usually television does. TV but, uh, yeah. there's, they have hundreds of 800 numbers. So that's one of the advantages is that we get to use 800 numbers and we don't have to pay for that. So each campaign typically has its own number so that we can track it. Okay. Have you, uh, get the, I, I imagine one of the benefits of working for a large national franchise like that is you get to see nationwide, you know, kind of what's trending and what's working. What are sellers responding more to? Is that right? Yes, I can see the numbers for the whole country, but I'm sure my corporate office wouldn't want me to share those. Okay. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. We're get, actually, we're getting ready to go and leave in a couple weeks for a convention, so we'll get all kinds of good good new info in New Orleans this year. Well, if you ever change your mind, you, you can always... <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure one of them would love to be on the show. You can call one of the corporate guys. I can hook you up there. <laughs> Mike Hambright had me on his uh, podcast. I know you think about home Yeah, yeah, I did one with him too. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a great guy. Well, okay, we've been talking about a lot of different things: um, property management, franchises, um, financing properties, and stuff like that. Um, this has been a really, really good call. I appreciate your time here, Patty. Is there is there something we haven't talked about yet that you feel is important that we need to ask you? What, what's a good question to ask you? Hmm. What? Okay. Like put me right on the spot. Uh, uh, how about this? Um, what are some good books that you've read, that are business related or real estate related, that you'd recommend the audience to to pick up and read? I think if you're interested in getting into a into landlording, one of the best sources nationwide is Jeffrey Taylor and MrLandlord.com. He was just his here in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. His his newsletter. I think it's a hundred bucks a year. And it's one of the best sources. And if you subscribe to the newsletter, you get access to his website. And my best landlording tips have come from him. He's he's got he's got some good stuff, and he's not that expensive. Good. So, MrLandlord.com. MrLandlord.com. Uh, you know, we were talking about Section Eight too, and I've seen him advertise a book called the Section Eight Bible. Um, have you? Do you know? Are you familiar with that? I don't know if it's a book or a. No, a I'm not. I've not read. I've not read that. I don't know if he's published it or I don't even know if I know what I'm talking about, but I've heard a lot of people recommend that it's called the section eight Bible. And, um, I'll check it out. I think it's updated regularly. Well, that's good. Anything else? Any other books you'd recommend? Um, this is a, I mean, a, not a real estate related, but how to stop worrying and start, start living okay. changed my life when I was there for young. How to Stop Worrying great and Start Living. And Start Living. Mm-hmm. Could all use a little bit of that. Good. People worry way too much. Uh-huh. And, I, you know, the big advice I would give folks is stop talking about it and start doing it. Yeah. You know, you can but buy all the, the courses in the world, but until you, until you buy the first house, you're never going to – you've got to just stop the analysis paralysis and just buy a house. Just go out and buy a house. It's not that hard. I heard of this. Even if you make a mistake. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I heard this um, phrase the other day: "Ignorance on fire is better than knowledge on ice." Mm-hmm, I love that. Nice sizzle. That's that's, that's sizzles. Mm-hmm, that's <laughs> ignorance, good. ignorance on fire is better than knowledge on ice. And so often we get stuck and 
feel, you know, just trapped in this rut of analyzing everything and feeling like we have to know all the answers before we start doing anything. It just you'll never. Yeah, make and then you have the missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. The people who started when I started, I know there are folks in our market who go to the real estate clubs that started attending about the same time I did, and they haven't they haven't bought a house yet, and they missed it. Our big opportunity was here and gone. You know, now the market shifted and it's harder to buy a house. Well, at the so, same time, though, Patty, would you say somebody who's just now finding out about real estate and is just now starting to get interested in it, is it too late for them to get in? It is never too late. You know, I I came into what people called the bad market. You know, I didn't right. know any different because I had never been in the market before and prices were low. And I, you know, a lot of real estate investors were bailing from that market and I didn't know any better. So I thought it was great. And now the market, you know, has shifted some back to that uh, sweeter market, and where that's where most people like to be with with appreciation, and um, most people are more comfortable there. Um, but I wasn't because I didn't know any better. There's not there's not such thing as a bad market in real estate. The market just changes, can, and, and you need to be able it to change. Changes. You just have to adjust. You've got to recognize it and adjust. Exactly right. Uh, you know, it's yeah. Amazing. I mean, we're, Go ahead. we're making it happen back in 2007, 2008, and all the way up to you know probably 2012. That's the worst time in real estate. And it's funny because that's when I got I jumped out of my um, I had a, a security company that I co-owned with somebody, and I jumped out at 2008, supposedly the worst time in real estate, and started you know 100 percent full time. And, uh, you know, those, that was the time right there where we were making it happen and everybody was running for the hill. So, you know, you can make it back then. You can make it at any time. Well, and, and, and sometimes <laughs> in some ways it's easier to make it now because there's so many buyers out there and the demand is so high. And so that's why you got to be a good, good deal yeah. finder. you got to be a good deal finder and you mm-hmm. got to be a, an expert at marketing. And dealing with sellers. Yes. And know how to talk to sellers. And anything else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. And it's all about marketing, no matter what area or no matter what trend the market is heading. It's all about marketing. And what's funny is there's things that have always worked and they always will work. It's just being smart. And I think, yeah, it's it's, it's just taking action. You know, I remember getting started and reading all of these, you know, going to boot camps and workshops and, and buying all these courses back in 2006 when the market was screaming hot. And there were tons of people making good money back then. I mean, do you remember those days? There, there was. I have friends in Phoenix who, when the market was really, really hot, and there was tons of competition, you couldn't walk down the street without tripping over bandit signs. They were everywhere, mm-hmm. and there were still guys making a lot of money. Um, then when the market changed, um, there's still guys making money. There were still guys rehabbing. There were still guys wholesaling. There were still guys doing property management or, you know, buying and holding properties. So you just got to learn to change with it and stay consistent. That's my, that's my piece of advice. Good advice. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Alex. Well, I don't have a pipe and neither do I smoke, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. Uh, Patty, is there anything else? Let me ask you a question, Patty. Uh, you know, I'll let you answer that one in a second. But I, I love asking this question to people. Um, if you were, um, you know, stranded in some desolate city in the middle of the um, uh, desert, and you had to start making money, and you know, it was a good-sized city, like let's say 500,000 people, and you didn't know anybody, you didn't have much money, and you wanted to get started 
in real estate, start making some money, what are some of the things that you'd start doing? I would try to find out who was who was actually making money in real estate and, and go and find that person and um, have them show me the ropes or see if I could partner or find the people who are doing it. Okay. Find yeah. the leaders in the market. Excellent. And you just, you'd come to them probably with the approach of, hey, how can I help you grow your business? How can I help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they would be more likely to help you and teach you what they're doing because it's benefiting them as well. Right. Good. That's simple. I like that. I like simple. <laughs> um, okay. Well, Patty, anything else that you'd like to, to share? Any any good words of advice for beginners? It's like encourage everyone to go and buy a house. Good. Get a deal done. Get your first one done. Well, buy a Get house. your first one done. It's all downhill. Or um, wholesale. Whatever. You guys are promoting wholesaling, mostly, right? Get one under contract. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and if you and if you get them in the Norfolk market, bring them to me. Well, Patty, I was going to ask you that. End buyer. Patty, how can <laughs> how can people get a hold of you? I mean, you're looking to buy deals. Um, you, you, if somebody brings you a good deal, you'd probably partner with them on it or something. Um, Absolutely. How can how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, my cell phone is seven five seven four seven two two five four seven. Wow, she gave out her cell phone. No one's ever done yeah. that before, Patty. Obviously, <laughs> really? No, I, my cell phone's every place. It's do you my want secret? And then, do you want to know Alex's my, cell phone number? Hey, I know it. I, I, I have Alex's cell phone. <laughs> I won't give it on the air. No, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, and, and do you have an email address? I will drag him into a real meeting. Um, yeah, Patty, Patti. <laughs> Uh-huh. Robertson at TidewaterHomesVA.com. Patty Robertson at, can you say that again? Tidewater, TidewaterHomesVA.com. Tidewater Homes with an S? Mm-hmm. VA for Virginia.com. It's almost as long as one of my emails. It's I know, I know, All right. I P- know. P-A-T-T-I. R O B E R T S O N at Tide T I D E Water Homes with an S V A for Virginia dot com. Right. There you go. And yep. Website is tidewaterhomesva.com. Cool. Well Patty, Thanks. you've been a you've been Thanks, a great guys. guest. Good luck with your show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and we sure appreciate it. Everybody go to real com to get the show notes to uh, to see the links and the stuff that we talked about and how to get a hold of Patty. Um, this has been a good show. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Absolutely. Alex. Absolutely. Have a good week. Thank you, Patty. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye. Yeah.